It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss. The lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision. Every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking... But I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, and welcome to the March edition of the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast. I'm Fergus Collins, the editor of the magazine, and with me are features editor Joe Pontin and editorial assistant Heather McKay. Hello. Hey. Today we'll be talking a little bit about rural news stories that have caught our attention this month, as well as what's coming up in the magazine, and we'll also be offering a few suggestions of places to explore in the countryside. But first, let's talk about one of the most serious issues that I've ever come across people and particularly children's lack of connection with the countryside and the natural world. It's a subject that keeps cropping up, but still isn't being taken seriously enough, I think. So this year, we're teaming up with the National Trust to create the Octavia Hill Awards, which celebrate those great people, professionals and volunteers who inspire children to explore the outdoors and get closer to nature. We'll have more details on how you can enter in a few minutes. But first, I spoke to a man who's made it his personal crusade to reconnect children with the wider world. David Bond recently made a film called Project Wild Thing, and in it he explored all these issues. I wanted him to explain why disconnection with nature was such a problem in the modern world. So David, tell me about um, Project Wild Thing and uh, what's it all about? Well, Project Wild Thing is a feature documentary that we've released and has been out in cinemas um, and is now kind of doing the beginning to do the rounds of community screenings and a, a TV play and various other various other ways that, that people can view it and DVD as well but it's it's basically a film asking why children 
don't go outdoors nearly as much as they used to. And, and the evidence for that is, is pretty overwhelming. I mean, I saw it first in my own family. I noticed that, that I'd, I'd roamed in about a square mile of suburban Canterbury when I was growing up. And my kids would be lucky to roam in our very small backyard in Lewisham. Now, when I spoke to my mum, who's 80, she reckons she roamed in, in about 50 square miles of North Yorkshire. Now, that's not totally because she was in the countryside and they're in the city. It's, it's, it's also because there's just been a huge number of barriers that have gone up between ch- children and the outdoors over the last 50 or so years. And, uh, you know, they, they, they're really, they range from traffic and stranger danger to the kind of risk aversion and health and safety culture, um, no lack of unstructured play opportunities for kids, uh, but maybe most of all, commercialization of, of children. So I started asking, well, how come Nintendo and Disney and, and, and all of these games manufacturers are so brilliant at selling children what they produce? And nature and the outdoors has kind of failed to keep up in terms of marketing its, its wonderful product, which is fun and free and really good for you. I mean, there are lots and lots of different reasons why parents don't let their, their kids go outside so much. I mean, we don't. And, and, you know, we worry about crime and we worry about traffic. Um, but for almost for, for, there are different groups of parents in different ways, I believe. And that's what we do in the film. We kind of run a whole marketing campaign and we figure out how, how different ways in which we might be able to persuade parents and children to spend more, more time outside. I mean, some parents respond really well to the fact that it's really good for children. It's really healthy for them. Um, others respond really well to the fact that it, it's actually very good for their development. And actually, there's evidence that it's good for their earning power in the future. But, you know, there's, the evidence is now overwhelming that, that, um, that time outside, time active, time outside, especially in unstructured play, is, is just fantastic for children's development. I think that's the key. I was talking to my wife about this and she'd watched your film and she was saying, well, look, it's, that's really good. I, 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 I sort of feel that it's right to be going outside, but why? And maybe you could sort of, for our, for our listeners, just explain some of the key um, elements that... that Getting kids playing outside and enjoying the uh, nature, what does it do for them? There have been studies to show that mental health in children, physical health in children, is is greatly improved by time outside. There are studies that show that levels of stress hormones um, are reduced by time outside. Um, there, are, there, there are studies that show that people, patients recover quicker with a view of, of greenery than they do with a city view, that, that students perform better on tests when they have a view of, 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 um, of the countryside or of greenery rather than of, of a city view. If you think about the benefits there of a view and then you go to immersion, immersion has even, 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 even bigger effects. I mean, the, the studies are, uh, are coming thick and fast now and it's very exciting. It's a kind of time where we've realized the huge health benefits of this free, I mean, I hate to call it this, but it's kind of like a wonder drug. Yeah. Just finally, before, before, we, before we wrap up, what, um, what would you advise parents who, who, are, who, know, who feel the urge that they, they, they get the message and are unsure how to go about getting their kids out into nature? You know, it's, it is time consuming. It can be difficult if you live in a city. What, what sort of simple things would you advise? It's a great question. I mean, the difficulty, of course, is that no two people's situations are the same. But having said that, there is always 
countryside and nature and outdoor experiences to be had on everyone's doorstep. And, and my, my, the thing that we encourage people to do is to try and find the really local stuff because it's all very well to have a great epic adventure somewhere very wild in an ancient forest, but it probably for most people isn't a repeatable experience. And the evidence from play workers and from developmental experts is that children really benefit from the regular experience. So I, I would say just take a tiny extra amount of time a day, maybe a minute or two minutes to begin with, just to find the little bits of, of outdoors and nature that are immediately around your house. And they might be, uh, literally there might be a dandelion coming up through, through the cracks of the pavement. And what seems to happen is when people do that and become aware of what's immediately on their doorstep in a very microcosmic way, then things grow from there and people begin to want to do more. But we've got an app on the website, a free app on the website called Wild Time, which um, recommends loads of different activities and games that, that, um, that can draw you outside with children. And you can choose how long you've got from one minute up to half a day or a day. That sounds perfect. That's and brilliant advice. I think I will, I will uh, t tell everyone in the office to do that right now. <laughs> Many thanks, David. That's absolutely brilliant. It's great to talk to you, Fergus. Thanks ever so much. Well, there you go. It's a subject close to my heart, and one reason why I've ended up in a remote Monmouthshire hillside with my little boy. David Bond has kindly agreed to be a judge in the October Hill Awards, which, as I mentioned earlier, are this year celebrating wild heroes, those who encourage and inspire children to explore the natural world. You can find the full details of this in our April issue, which is on sale on the 21st of March. But what about our current issue, the March 2014 issue of BBC Country Farm magazine? What can you enjoy in the magazine this month? Heather, why don't you kick us off? Okay. Well, if you are finally ready to get out and about in the countryside after quite a long winter, then you can enjoy one of our Great Days Out. So, our Great Days Out section, this issue, covers Britain's best nature reserves. So we've covered everything from woodlands to wetlands and a whole range of places where you can see wildflowers, birds, mammals and insects. I think there are quite a few good surprises in there this month. Yeah, I think not, they're not the obvious places that mm -hmm. you might, might expect. So well worth a, worth a look and finding some new places to see some really interesting wildlife. What, what sort of things um, might people be looking for then in, in these nature reserves? Well, you could, uh, you could see hares, dragonflies. Uh, puffins and seals. Puffins, yeah. Uh, water voles, possibly. Uh, Julia's uh, been lucky enough to see a water vole at uh, Arundel. So um, hopefully, you know, you get to see quite a few different species. Yeah, and they're, they're all around the country. So wherever you live, there's, there's a great nature reserve nearby for you, to, for you to visit and hopefully have a great spring wildlife experience. How about you, Joe? What's on your feature list this month? Well, it's probably the mother of all nature reserves, or, or will be one day. Um, it's a, a glen in Scotland called Allerdale, where um, over the last few years they've begun an incredible project to rewild 50,000 acres of highland uh, countryside. Um, it's at its early stages now, uh, but they've already reintroduced uh, wildcats and red squirrels. And the idea is to just keep that process going, keep planting trees, keep transforming it into the kind of landscape you might have seen a thousand years ago in the Highlands. Um, so the next thing is wild boar. The, the plan is to introduce beavers. And in the long run, wolves and bears. That would be interesting to see wolves, sort of large predators, roaming wild in the British countryside. Possibly some contro controversy about that. Well, you might be reassured to know that there will be a dirty great fence around this place. <laughs> um, 
but actually that in itself has caused a little bit of controversy because up in, in Scotland, of course, there is uh, stronger right to roam legislation, which means that for, for some walkers, the idea of putting a big fence around a place that would otherwise be open access is a bit controversial. It's interesting that Scotland has that open access and, and the rest of the country is still private signs everywhere. So, uh, yeah, it will be interesting. So you've got a clash of great predators and ramblers. Well, I'll, I'd like to talk about some of the presenters. Um, every month, the Country of Our presenters write uh, columns for us. Um, but this month, Matt has kindly gone a bit further than the usual and has invited us in with the cameraman to meet him and his new dog, Bob, who's a border collie. But basically, Matt's training him up to become a one-man-his-dog champion. So Matt very kindly showed us some of his his own personal training tips. Now, as someone who wants to get a dog eventually, I was really interested in these because they are they, they make so much sense. But to have just a page full of these really, really well-honed dog training tips, I think it's probably worth the cover price alone of the magazine. As Heather mentioned, Julia Bradbury is our great walker in the magazine. So she's in Arundel in Sussex looking for water voles. Adam is talking about lambing. He returns for Lambing Live this month with Kate Humble. So he's talking about the whole lambing process and what you can expect to see in the fields in March and April. Lots of gambling lambs. And John Craven is, has got some, well, following on from what Joe was saying about Allerdale, has got some good news that landowners and ramblers and walkers are coming together to try and make, uh, well, set out all the footpaths that haven't been noted down officially and try and make them sensible so they don't run through busy farmyards and through people's back gardens and things like that. So it's, it's actually quite a good news story about footpaths and roaming and landowners coming together to, to, to make the countryside more accessible. Just one more thing, which we don't mention very often, but we have a fabulous website called countryfile.com. Now, there's lots of things we can't do in the magazine instantaneously, so like reporting on... Um, news and issues that happen on a daily basis when we're planning a magazine. So we do, we have a lot of news stories on the website and you can catch up with lots of other fun features. So countryfile.com if you want to uh, sort of join a wider Countryfile magazine community. Including the latest on the floods. Well, that's absolutely true. And we, in fact, we're, we're going to talk about that in a, in a moment. But yes, catch up with all the latest rural news on, on, our, on our website. In fact, Joe, why don't you kick us off then? Talk about some... Uh, rural news stories that have caught our eyes. So what about those floods? Well, of course, um, really, looking at what happens next, um, we, we hope that the flood waters will subside, but we're told that it could take months in some places. So that means that the clear-up operation is going to take a very long time indeed. Um, but once those flood waters have gone down, there's going to be a long debate about what to do next, what the country should do to try to protect itself from these episodes of extreme weather. Um, and you can't help thinking that if we look at worst-case scenarios, we're going to have to spend a lot more money on the engineering that protects us from the effects of these episodes. Well, there seems to be a lot of debate about what sort of solutions there should be. So I speak to lots of people who say, dredge the rivers, just dredge the rivers, get the rivers wider and deeper so you can carry flood water off um, uh, away from these uh, floodplains and out into the sea. And then you get people like George Monbiot and other environmentalists who say, well, that's all very well, but we had so much rain, 
is just making bigger and wider rivers going to deal with it? What do you think? Have you have you got any thoughts on that, Jake? Well, either way, I mean, if we choose to dredge and opt for other more highly sort of engineered solutions to the problems, that's going to cost money. If we choose to go the Monbiot route um, of uh, allowing some areas to flood more frequently, that is going to be very politically difficult to sell. So the politicians have got a really difficult choice. They either spend more money they'd rather spend elsewhere, or they face the criticism when they, you know, choose to change people's way of life. Yeah, exactly. By changing the it landscape. Seems to be a sort of farmland or town. It's a bit of a conflict. But I quite like the, those rather neat solutions proposed where, uh, if, that involve planting trees in the uplands and rewilding some of the uplands, rather like the Allerdale estate you were talking about, where you recreate bogs up on the hills so that the water is retained there for much longer and then you get these massive downpours that we've had, but actually it doesn't flow straight down into the rivers and onto the floodplains. It sounds like a great solution and I would love to see it in action. Um, and maybe that's something we'll re- report on at a later stage. Heather, how about you? What's what's caught your eye? Well, I've seen a really interesting um, story that uh, from the Office of National Statistics that uh, has implied that um, people who live uh, in rural areas actually live longer. So it, for men, um, it was found that if they live in a rural area, they can expect to live until their 80th birthday, uh, compared to 78 in towns and cities. Really? Okay, well, there we go. <laughs> That's one one nil to the countryside. Uh, did it say why? Did, did they have any reasons well, I why? I think there's a, a, range, a number of factors, um, but they found that fresh air and healthy lifestyles obviously can well, contribute. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Um, walking and, and so on um, contribute. Uh, massively to it but they also noted that many uh, richer Britons who lived in cities chose to then retire to the country so perhaps they have uh, better access to or greater access to to good health care even though they're in a rural area perhaps um, or you know also they found that uh, statistics showed a lower range sorry Statistics showed a lower risk of cancers, strokes and heart disease um, in residents there. So um, that could be a a factor as well. It's this classic thing. It goes back to what we were talking about with David Bond, that contact with the outdoors and contact with nature is good for your mental, physical and emotional well-being. That's a really good way of tying back into it because we know that. That's what we promote in the magazine um, it ought, probably ought to be part of national policy that everyone should be sh- shipped Absolutely. off regularly to the countryside yeah. for a, <laughs> like they did with the sort of health spas of old. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a relatively good news story to talk about this month because um, the weather has been depressing. But last year's summer was, was actually pretty good and the charity Butterfly Conservation have announced that um, butterflies, which had done terribly in the wet summer of 2012, have bounced back and have actually doubled the number of insects were spotted. So that's really good. And things like small tortoiseshells and peacocks, which were so common once upon a time, particularly as when I were a lad, now uh, were, were very common last year. And particularly common, I also noticed, were cabbage whites, large whites and small whites. And um, they utterly, de- yeah, utterly destroyed my cabbage patch this year. So all we need now is a series of spectacular summers and the butterflies will be fine. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, who knows? Who knows what the weather will offer? But a a good warm summer certainly was really heartening because there were stories that 
some of our species were going to go extinct if we'd had another bad bad summer. Uh, they're also obviously conservationists are never happy. They're worried that um, this warm winter and warm early early spring will mean that they hatch too early or they appear too early, and uh, there won't be any food for them. So. Yeah, poor butterflies. They are so fragile. They do require the most specific habitats and climate for, to survive. But fingers crossed for them this year. So finally, chaps, what about um, what about getting out into the countryside this this month? Any thoughts on good places to go? What are, what are you guys planning to do? Well, it's a big month, isn't it? I mean, March is is the month when you do hopefully start to see the first of the genuine spring weather. I mean, it's, you can also get proper freezing cold sleet and snow. Well, last year was awful, wasn't it? it was... Last year was dreadful. It was dreadful well into April as well. Yeah. But um, hopefully this year we will get one of the, one of some of those lovely um, warm afternoons that you sometimes get in March. Um, and I think it's really a case of when they come along, grab the opportunity to get out there, even if it's very local to you. Um, on the other hand, I'm... It's also a good chance to sort of plan and get out there, whatever whatever happens, you know, because um, there's more light, for one thing. It's light earlier in the day, and you get a decent length of day in which to do a proper walk. So I'm planning to go uh, up on the hills somewhere with some friends one day um, in the next month. And it could be the Wye Valley, it could be the Quantocks, it could be South Wales, Brecon Beacons. Not sure yet, but um, we'll we'll try and make the most of the day and hopefully finish up in a decent country pub. Excellent, excellent. That's the best way to round off a walk. How about you, Hev? Well, I've learned of a really sweet little woodland copse around the corner from my parents' house on the Isle of Wight, um, where there are apparently red squirrels. So I'd really like to go and see if I can just sort of see, you know, see what I can see. Uh, on a walk, maybe, uh, maybe even get some get some photos. It's the island's one of the last yes, strongholds in the is, south of yes. uh, south of Britain, mm-hmm. where, where red squirrels are holding out, mainly because they've got rid of greys have never made it, or they've wiped out the greys. I'm not sure what the story is. I, th- I believe it's that the greys haven't made it there yet. Um, it's apparently it's an offence to introduce them there, and uh, there's tales um, of the ferry being turned back um, because there was a grey stowaway on board. <laughs> really? Or something wow! Like that. So, Goodness me! Yeah, it's like a sort of red squirrel prison camp. Yeah. Right. Well, it leaves me to come up with something. Well, I am going to be looking for goshawks this March. Goshawks are big, sort of supercharged sparrowhawk. Really impressive, but very secretive. They're kind of buzzard size, but they move like a jet fighter. And they live in conifer woods, which are sort of thick and gloomy, so quite nice to have something living in them. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. Basically, there's lots around me, lots of these woods around me in Monmouthshire, and I'm sure there are goshawks there. But there's a really excellent place in the Forest of Dean called New Fancy View, which is a great name for what is a sort of man-made pyramid in the middle of the forest, where you can climb to the top, see across the whole of the, of the woods. It looks like woodland to the horizon. It's, it, for me, it's our own little Amazon rainforest. Um, and on a warm, sunny March morning, or even February, you can see these birds performing their courtship displays about the forest. So they kind of glide, soar, chase each other and do these great sort of loop the loops. It's, it's, rather, it's good, good fun and probably the best chance you get to see these birds because the rest of the year they're hiding in our forests and probably eating grey squirrels. So um, they get probably ticks on all, front for that, all fronts for that. 
So really, grey squirrels need to evolve eyes in the back of their heads if they live in the forest. Yeah, well, that's true, yeah. Although they're obviously not eating enough for conservationists, uh, from a conservationist point of view. Uh, well, that's it for this month. I mean, I hope you, our listeners, manage to get out into the countryside and that we have some benign weather. And tune in again for the April issue in four weeks' time. Thank you. Goodbye from the Countryfile team. Bye. Bye.